0: Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B26 bombardier. Today we continue in the play The Severs, part of the trilogy of plays called The Silver Fields of Northbrook. This is scene 3 entitled The Standard Club. It's early June. 1959. Shirley Silverfield's older brother, Norman Gordon, lived along Chicago's North Lakefront with his wife Jane and their daughters Joan, Judy, and Jill. Norman was an executive with Clonick Steel, a specialty producer of reinforcement bars that was owned by his father-in-law, Abe Clonick. The Gordons lived a prosperous life, Spacious apartments, large cars, and club memberships. For summer days of golf and swimming, it was Bryn Mawr Country Club in Lincolnwood. Throughout the year, regardless of the season, there was the Standard Club in the heart of downtown Chicago. A classic sports residential tower, it was the Jewish community's answer to the exclusionary Wasp City Clubs. Imagine an ocean liner on edge. It hosted the extended Silverfields and Gordons for the rehearsal dinner before Stanley married Shirley on June 19, 1946. During the Northbrook years, Norman invited his nephews, Michael, and his close-but-not-cousin, Scott Fleshman, the son of Jane's sister, Shirley, to the Standard Club's father-and-son baseball night always a Friday night in early June. This became a memorable night for the up-and-coming hardball progeny. Michael, 11, was four years into his Northbrook Little League career as a left-handed pitcher, outfielder, and first baseman. Michael and Scott loved sharing this night, which included Michael's weekend stay at the Fleischman's spacious third-floor apartment in a building owned by Scott's grandfather, Abe Klonick. Abe and Rose Clonick lived on the first floor of 451 West Aldine. They had a spacious concrete terrace over a two-car garage. Rose made a legendary beet borscht, which Michael often poured over the wall when the adults were busy. Scott's mother, Shirley, made Michael feel at home with her usual tirades at these up-and-coming hardballers. The Standard Club's festivities in the main ballroom began at 5 p.m. and included a baseball buffet, special guests, and a legendary raffle where every kid went home with a ball, bat, glove, or White Sox hat and jacket. Then it was time to load large land cruiser buses for a police escort ride through every stoplight between the Loop and Comiskey Park. The Yankees were in town. These were the years of Mantle, Maris, Ford, and Barra. The Bronx Bombers Their opponent The South Side's Pale Hose Were playing well And would win the American League title Behind Billy Pierce Nelly Fox And the remarkable Cuban Comet Minnie Minoso Another lefty, Sandy Koufax Pitched for the Los Angeles Dodgers Who beat the White Sox In a five-game World Series That fall As the scene opens, Michael steps under a single light to read his letter to the Stearns, and he begins, Dear Aunt Lucille and Uncle Lester, I am really excited. The Standard Club's father and son's baseball night is this week. I can hardly sleep. This is my third time at the club. As you remember, Mom's brother, Uncle Norman, takes me and Scott Fleshman, his nephews, as his sons for that night. It's a great evening. Last year I won a new bat in the raffle. Fried chicken, baseball gear, police escort ride to Comiskey Park to see the Pale Hose and the Yankees. What a wonderful scene. An amazing evening. My chance to see Billy Pierce and Whitey Ford spin their lefty magic. Mickey Mantle, too. I'll close. Got a big night tomorrow. I love you, Michael. As the scene converts, Norman Gordon, Scott Fleshman, and Michael are sitting in excellent reserve seats at the legendary Comiskey Park. The air crackles with anticipation on a cool evening in the city. Uncle Norman begins. What do you think, guys? Good seats? And Michael, these are great, Uncle Norm. We can see the whole field. Yes, wow, these are the best yet. Thank you, says Scott. And, Norman, you guys are welcome. It's nice to settle in and catch the end of the infield work. Ready for peanuts and popcorn? You bet, Uncle Norm. This scene is amazing. The Bronx Bombers invade Comiskey Park. That's right, Michael. It's Mantle Maris, Whitey Ford, and your hero, Billy Pierce, tonight. Two lefties. Pierce is fine, but I'm a Koufax kid all the way. I've got my Culligan uniform ready to go. Number five. I asked for thirty-two. And Scott, I'm almost packed for camp, ready for hardball, too. Norman to his nephews, you guys are super ready for summer. I want you to enjoy every day. As the ballpark lights dim, Michael appears under a single light, wearing his Culligan soft water baseball uniform. He's part of the Northbrook Little League. Michael will read from a... July 2021 issue of Sports Illustrated, and an article written by Alex Prewitt entitled, Mickey Mantle, Chairman of the Cardboard. This brief reading focuses on Gloria Berger, who in 2021 would be 98, which makes her the same age as the Silver King, born in 1923. Michael reads, Gloria Berger turns 98 later this year, but she remains sharp, living with a longtime housemate. Not a caretaker, she clarifies, on Long Island, near the cozy Hempstead two-bedroom where her late husband, Cy, mapped out the modern baseball card some seven decades ago. He would sit at the kitchen table until 2 a.m., Writing out the backs of the cards and researching everything three times to make sure he had the right facts, Gloria says. He was very excited, but he also took it very seriously. A World War II Air Force veteran, Berger joined Tops as a summer intern in 1947, linking up with an old fraternity brother whose family owned the cigarette-turned-chewing-gum company. In 1951, with Berger in charge of the new project, Topps printed its first baseball card series, a limited release that was packaged with tongue-torturing taffy. A disaster, Berger would later say. But he wouldn't whiff twice. Not only was the full 1952 Tops set, 407 cards issued across six series during the MLB season, bigger than anything that the industry leader, Bowman, had yet produced, but it also debuted full-color photos, facsimile, autographs, and the backside statistics and bios over which Berger had dutifully poured, all fixtures on sports cards ever since. Berger was a natural pitchman, frequenting major and minor league ballparks to befriend players of all abilities and lock up their exclusive trading card rights in exchange for gifts, toasters, blenders from Topps Home Goods catalog. Their contract signatures were then reproduced for the cards. And he developed an especially close relationship with the era's biggest star, my earliest memory of being in a clubhouse, says sigh and glorious son Glenn, is me sitting in Mantle's lap, watching him wrap his knees. Today, the enduring prestige of Top's first set, and by extension, its signature card, number 311, batting leadoff in the sixth series, derives in part from the modest, if forbearing work of its creator. Cy Berger, who turned baseball heroes into brilliant rectangles, dies at 91, read the headline of his 2014 obituary in the New York Times, a framed copy of which hangs on a wall at Gloria's home. But Berger also played a key role in sculpting the set's outsized popularity long after it rolled off printing presses, says Gloria. The only other card history I know is about him dumping them in the ocean. The tale is trading card lore. Stuck with a backlog of unsold cases of the 1952 Six Series at Topps Brooklyn Factory around 1960, and having struck out in his attempts to sell them at steep discount, Berger hauled hundreds of the boxes onto a garbage scow, set sail, and drowned all those mantles Jackie Robinson's, number 312, and Bobby Thompson's, number 313, in the Hudson River, drastically increasing their scarcity. Is it true? Perhaps. Skeptics posit that if anything, a smaller count of 1952s were trashed in a broader cleaning effort when Topps moved its production operation to Durier, PA in the mid-1960s. They will also note that the Burgers didn't really talk about the barge in public until around the time that Maddle was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1974. I think they created a narrative to some degree to generate interest, says Dave Hornish, a vintage card historian and blogger. Whatever the truth, though, the tale's impact on the market for 1952 Mattles is undeniable. That really helped cement their mystique, Hornish says. Sure enough... When the card industry showed flickers of its first boom in the latter half of the 1970s, it was the 1952 mantle acting as catalyst. Classified ads seeking the card, regardless of condition, started to appear in newspapers. One from the Chicago Tribune requested old baseball cards and 1952 Topps Mantle, as if number 311 occupied a stratosphere all by itself. Hobby newsletters, meanwhile, reported bigger and bigger sales, such as a less-than-excellent mantle raking in $200 at a St. Louis auction, and an excellent mint version fetching $500 from a Maryland collector. There is no card more controversial, Lou Lipset wrote in the June 1978 edition of The Trader Speaks. Its price rise over the last year has brought forth many advocates and detractors. The story of the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle card is stunning a great read, and captures the frenzy of those days and these days around the industry. Now, after a brief dimming of the stage lights, Michael appears again, still in his Northbrook Little League uniform, and reads his next letter to the Stearns. Dear Aunt Lucille and Uncle Lester, What a night! The Standard Club was packed, Scott and I won cool gear, balls and bats. After the fried chicken and ice cream, the prizes went fast. Then we rode big buses with police escorts through the loop to Comiskey Park. We didn't stop the entire way. Our seats were incredible, mezzanine level, undercover. It was Whitey Ford versus Billy Pierce, two legendary lefties. The Sox won when Minnie Minoso hit a long eighth-inning home run. Scott and I got to the Fleischmanns around midnight. I'll never forget this Friday night. The Bronx Bombers, Mantle, Maris, Barrow, wow. Hope to see you soon. I love you and miss you, Michael. As the scene ends, the lights go down, and no one knows what irony awaits the Silverfields. The following summer, after baseball, beach trips, and barbecues, the curtain lowers on the Northbrook years. The Silverfields will become the Seavers in October 1960. Michael, the lonely liberal in his Teddy Roosevelt's 7th grade social studies class, took the presidential oath on January 20th, 1961, after JFK won the White House over Richard Nixon, one month after the family arrived in Rockford. Almost three years later, in November 1963, Michael, a high school sophomore, sat in his afternoon geometry class at Guilford High School when the intercom relayed the news of JFK's assassination. Now, in November of 2023, 60 years after that tragic day, I want to share a story about my connection to Roy Seavers. Twenty years ago, after a splendid round of golf at the famed Pasa Tiempo Golf Club in Santa Cruz, California which was designed by Alistair McKenzie two dear friends Paul DuPay and Kevin O'Donnell joined me for a post-round cocktail we were sitting on the terrace at the club reviewing our rounds discussing our many errors in a few successful shots when Paul DuPay went to the trunk of his car, and pulled out a box. He brought it to the table, gave it to me, and I opened it. And inside was a shadow box framed around a Roy Seavers autographed baseball and a Roy Seavers Washington Senators baseball card. I was floored. Today, that shadow box resides in our apartment, right next to the framed Sports Illustrated magazine cover of Sandy Koufax in 1964, and you are listening to The Silver King's War.